Chapter 15, so please turn with me then to Acts chapter 15. Uh, yeah, I was getting right into it. You should have a little review. But actually, the, the verses themselves kind of present themselves as a review anyways. So, so Acts 15, verse 22, says this, And the apostles and the elders of the whole church decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called um, Barsabbas, um, and Silas, men who were leading or leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter: the apostles and elders, your brothers, uh, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and um, Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some um, went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, uh, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So basically, um, where we left off last week, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas uh, went from the church way up in Antioch, uh, down to uh, Antioch in Syria, down to, well, I say down, but they say up, because in, 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 in Israel, everything goes up to, Israel, to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's on a hill. So it, it, no matter where you are geographically, everything always goes up to Jerusalem and down. But in a Western way of thinking, we think of north and south as being up and down. So they're actually, from my perspective, they're going down to Jerusalem. But in their perspective, they're going up to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? I hope it does. But, but basically, they went to Jerusalem. There you go. And, at, and in Jerusalem, th- there was an issue and a concern, a hot topic, you know, controversy. You know, and, and the controversy was about, well, they say it's about circumcision, but really it's about the Old Testament law of Moses. And, 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 and tradition and ceremony and ritual, you know, must we force the, our, the new converts who are Gentile, which means non-Jewish people, should we force them to follow the law of Moses like, like we have our whole lives, <laughs> basically? Do we make them like us, little, little us? Little, you know, do we just make more Judaistic Christians or do we just give them Christ and that's it? And a lot of people didn't like that because they're like, that's no fair. We have this burden. We should force them to have a burden too. Not a very nice thing to think, but that's kind of what's going on. It's no fair. Why do we carry a burden that they, they don't have to? But, 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 but their agreement was that actually, no, we don't carry the burden very well, and we shouldn't force them to do it either. Right? And that's what they determined last week. That, you know, no, no, no. It's, they don't, it's not about circumcision. It's not about this, these Old Testament um, rituals and, and, and rites and whatnot that... Because living by the law doesn't accomplish anything. And we've already seen that through history. Uh, what Jesus has done is given us salvation by grace through faith. 
And, and Paul spends a lot of time, especially in Galatians, dealing with these issues, the law of Moses versus being saved by faith of grace or by grace of faith. So, so that, that's the issue at hand. And so they're re- returning to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, who came from Antioch. And if you remember, Paul and Barnabas were very well respected. But the cool thing is they also sent two other guys just to authenticate that this came from us. This is a universal decision. It's not just that Paul and Barnabas came down, hung out with us, have some tea, we argued some things out, and they're going back up and they're making up their own minds. No, as a group, we agree upon these, these things. Because the problem was, if you look at verse 24, is the men who caused problem spoke out of authority. They just kind of... I, you know, I think we should do this. I think you guys should do that. And they spoke without authority. They didn't, it wasn't, and the thing is, we've got to ask ourselves, what does authority come from? Because I'm speaking, and there's churches all over the world this morning speaking, and they're speaking authoritatively, but how do you know that we're speaking from authority? Well, it's as simple as this. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Well, God's the ultimate authority, but Jesus is the son of God. Okay, we got that. Who did Jesus speak to? He spoke to his 12 apostles, right? And you go, this is the message. So we look at the apostles, the 12 initial sent out ones. They have the message. They are carrying the message. So it's a direct link, you know, to Jesus. And what they have done for us so kindly and so politely is they put together this thing here called the Bible, right? So that's the authority. If I were to come up, and that's the thing, there's a lot of churches today that, where people stand up and they'll talk about love, I'll talk about some political issue and peace and patience and lovely things. And the thing is, if they don't use the Bible, there's no authority. That's, that's how I take it. Because why? Authority comes from whom? God. God sent Jesus. Well, God used prophets. God wrote this thing. He used the prophets. He used his son. He used the apostles. Paul, Luke, James, John. In history, points back to these very important events. And so when they're making decisions, they make decisions based upon the closest to the source they can get. And who's the source is God and the Holy Spirit interacting and doing things amongst these the small group of people. And so someone, some groups, and the, and the thing is, this is very common. Heresies were very common at this time as well as it is today. Where people would come out and they have these theories and these ideas, these various interest groups. And they would say whatever they would. But the thing is, a lot of times Paul and even John and, you know, the other apostles, Peter even, I'm sure they all had at some point deal with these heresies, these things that weren't true. So the authority comes back to what the apostles. And so who's here? We remember last week it was James. James was an apostle. He lived with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He, he understood what the teachings of Jesus. And also who else was there? Peter. Peter, too, lived with Jesus. He was, they were friends. They were very close mates. They were students of Jesus. So that's the authority comes from Jesus, who represents God, because he's the son of God. So that's where the authority comes from. So long as we're reading from the Bible, we can be confident that what we have is authoritative. Because it's, it's right here. You know, and the thing is, the Bible, in case you haven't known, has been under a lot of you know, doubt. Is the Bible really the authority of God? You know, and that's been the case for hundreds of years. But guess what the findings have been? There has been findings, and the findings have been pretty much unanimous that actually this is really good stuff. This points back historically to the first church, first century church. It hasn't been messed around with 
Um, there's been little, I mean, really small changes in details that have been kind of uh, errors that have happened through human error through the time, but it's been, but they're so small that we can compare with other earlier texts and find out what the best closest renderings are. And plus, they don't, these, these errors don't even change the meaning of the text. There's like little pin errors. The, the meaning, as we have it in our Bibles, in our laps today, is exactly what was written 2,000 years ago when, when these things were put together. And to me, in my mind, that is divine. How can God preserve, I mean, well, how can God? That's a dumb question. God can do anything he wants. But how can men without God preserve documents, in, 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 especially in, I wouldn't say it's not prehistoric, but in, in rough <laughs> historical times, pre-printing press, pre-technology? How do people preserve so much information? It, it's impossible. Men can't do this. It has to be God. And still, bear in mind, there's a lot of people out there who want to prove the Bible wrong. So many smart, scholar, clever people that want to prove the Bible wrong. And trust me, if they found errors in the Bible that were detrimental, that would fatally wound the Bible and any credibility Bible, you would know about it. It would be published all over the place. And it would be the end of the the story for for even us. Because we'd have to say, oh, wow, that's right. I guess the Bible is wrong. Let's put them away. It hasn't happened. And trust me, there's a plenty of people looking. So here we have the authority. Little spiel on authority there. So they've all chose to, to send these, these, these um, they, so, so men came without the authority, disturbed them, troubling their minds. Uh, so they instead decided to send uh, Paul and Barnabas back. And look at the character of Paul and Barnabas. Okay, again, when we're talking about how do you trust someone, Especially in regards to authority and in hearing from God, a lot of times their their personalities, their character will will testify of that. A persons who who are liars aren't going to risk their lives for a lie. Okay, guys. Paul and Barnabas. Paul honestly believed that he encountered God on a road to Damascus. He believed that he it was a miracle, that he saw Jesus, he went blind, he went, he asked for this prophet, the prophet came, spoke to him, and he received his eyesight. Paul believed that this, what, this, that this happened, and it was such an intense experience for him that it changed his worldview completely, because before that he was a Pharisee who hunted and killed Christians. Then he became basically the ultimate spokesperson for Christianity because of this event which we would commonly call a testimony. That's profound, because if it was a lie, if he was just some scoundrel who wanted to like control the world by using the New Testament, he wouldn't be the kind of guy who would risk his life. And we already saw in his very first mission's journey, and it was documented by a historian called Luke. He almost died. People don't risk their lives for lies. I mean, well, they do for lies that they don't know about, but not for lies that they manufactured. At some point, you're going to say, okay, guys, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But he didn't do that. He went for it. Unless he's completely delusional. But we know Paul isn't the type prone to delusion. He was, he was, he was in the highest order of the Pharisees. He was an intelligent, proud, kind of one of those got-it-together type of guys. He wasn't prone to delusions. And he certainly wasn't of the character to be a liar. He believed in what he did, even before Christ. 
So with Christ, he even more so was convinced that what Christ was doing was real. So then they send these guys, Jesus and Silas, to confirm by the word of mouth um, these writings. And here's the, here's the details. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. That you're to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, and from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well in avoiding these things. Next slide, please. So there's one phrase in there that kind of jumps out at me. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Seem good to the Holy Spirit. How do they know the whole, what seems good to the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, how does, how does a group of people, how do we know that the Holy Spirit's happy about something? You know, how he agrees about something? Because that seems a bit odd. How does, that's a bold claim to make. How do they know it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? We know what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's the third person, the Trinity. It's, it's the presence of God living amongst people. So how does he interact with people? Well, let's look at some of the Holy Spirit theology of John, because there's a lot in the Bible. But John, I think, does really well um, you know, speaking or documenting a good theology of the Holy Spirit. The purpose, the work, the presence of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, it says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So teaches, reminding, all kinds of things. And of course, we're talking about authority. This is Jesus speaking here. This is John documenting what Jesus said. Jesus, what he's saying, what he's teaching. The Holy Spirit will help you. He's like an advocate. He's a helper. In John 15, 26, but the, when the whole, helper, he's an advocate, he's also a helper, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. The spirit helps us to know what's right, what's truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So again, it goes back to the authority of Christ. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. So when the spirit comes, he's a guide. So he's a helper, he's an advocate, he's a guide. But he's interested in teaching truths. 1 John 2, 27, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it's taught you, abide in him. So again, in the epistle of John, again, talk about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about this anointing. Anointing. This is an interacting, like a filling of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. You know, this, this, this sense of having God's presence with a group of people. And it just makes sense that what they're seeing is the truth. And it's about everything. It's not just about a few things. It's about everything. In 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. It's funny, I've been studying a lot about knowledge. I should have brought my book with me because it's like I could just read the book and it explains a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but the thing is, knowledge nowadays is it's a little bit funky. It's all about what what's, can be observed through empirical sensory-ish things like eyes and feelings and testing, stuff like that. But back before, what, 200, 200 years ago, knowledge was a lot more than that. It had to do with experiencing reality. So knowledge was based, it was how accurate you understood reality. Not just through experience, but also through reason, you know? 
And here the Holy Spirit makes sense. He gives knowledge. So basically gives us reason and experience that accurately represents reality. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's like an anchor. Like, well, look at the words he uses. An advocate, a helper, a guide. Teacher. So I think if you look at the whole process with James and his speech and Peter and his speech and the testimony, what it is is you see a lot of perspective, a lot of relativity, if you will. But it comes together and it causes a unity. And I think what they do is they look to the unity and it says, listen, look at the unity. There's something going on here. We have three different testimonies meshing together so beautifully. And that's what the Thapai said. They said, well, that's the Holy Spirit right there. He's talking in this agreement, in this commonality, in this koinonia. Next slide, please. So, but the Holy Spirit, with them, and what, what these other guys did, is they decided to give these requirements. And this is interesting, because the whole thing kind of confused you at first, because you thought, wait a second, they, 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 the whole issue was circumcision and following the law of Moses. But then, and, you know, and we don't, you don't have to do that. But instead, you have to do this. But wait, well, why not that, and why this? You know what I'm saying? It's like, wait, why did you say no to these things, but yes to these things? That seems a bit funny to me. Why are these new requirements? Aren't we just now entering the same problem of legalism? You know what I'm saying? They're saying, well, in order to know God, you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. No, 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 you don't have to do that, because we're saved by grace through faith. You don't have to do that. But you have to do these things. But wait, isn't that just circular? You know, you're just replacing old laws with new laws. That's what it seems like to me at first. Until you think about and you make a real clear distinction between what is salvation and what is morality or what is right. Sometimes we, it's just as Christians, we want to live a good life. And, we want, and part of living a good life is doing what good is. And another word for good is what's right. So these requirements are about salvation. That's the first thing we need to look at. And I'm going to look at it in the next slide a little bit more in detail. I just want to get you these ideas. These you guys are asking, see, the, the problem with the circumcision, the law of Moses, is these were things that lead us to a right relationship with God. These requirements weren't about having a relationship with God, but about having a right relationship with yourself and with men, other people. It's about morality, what's right. Something that's not taught commonly in schools and universities nowadays. Theoretically, they will in university, but they don't really deal with what is right and what is wrong. They'll talk about the theories of right and wrong, but they won't talk about what is right and what is wrong. But the problem is these moralities, if we make them about salvation, and that's the thing we're concerned about, you're replacing old laws with new laws. If we make them about salvation, then we only are met with, with legalism. And, and we certainly don't want to be legalistic either. Again, this would bring us back to the problem of circumcision and the law of Moses. Let's look at this a little more in detail. Next slide. Just for the next few minutes. So we have salvation theology. Okay? And here, we have a problem in the very top left corner, and that's righteousness. Righteousness means a right relationship with God. Through the law, they've already talked about this in Acts. Paul does an excellent job talking about it in Galatians and Romans as well. And it's, it's thorough. The Bible is rich with salvation theology. We're not dealing with that right now, though. Okay, guys? We're not dealing with it right now. And to sum it up, salvation theology is this. According to the law, it's not possible to have a right relationship with God through the law. Because the law is too hard. 
If you want to live, Paul in Galatians says, if you want to live by the law, you have to live by the law in its entirety at all times, every day, and never fail. As soon as you fail, you fail. And your relationship with God is askew. So it's not possible to live a right life with God by the law. But through faith in Christ, seeing Christ and the cross of Christ as a gift of grace that comes from God. And that gift is what? Having a right relationship with God. That's basic salvation theology, guys, okay? But that's not what we're talking about here with these scruples, these things that, that Paul, these requirements that, are, that the church brought back to the church up in Antioch. What they're dealing with is they're dealing with ethics, and ethics means, and it's funny because this issue's come up in Wednesday night. It's come up several times the last two weeks, this, this idea of morality and ethics and doing right. And as Christians, we need to be reminded to actually, sometimes we have to think about our lives and doing right, being good people. Ethics and morality speaks of living right, the good life. And this is, this is classic. This goes back to the Greeks, even before the apostles, before Jesus. So even the Greeks hanging about the time, they were already dealing with these issues of living right, living, what is the good life? What does it mean to be a good person? These were already issues that, that were big topics for hundreds of years, even before these guys were writing these things. And that's what this is about. These, these requirements had nothing to do with being right with God. It has to do with being right with yourself and right with others. Yeah, it's great you have a great relationship with God, but how are you treating other people? And how are you treating yourself? Sometimes Christians, we don't think about that. We want to be so God-centered that we forget that actually we can trip other people up. Heck, we can even trip ourselves up. And that's what ethics and morality is all about. Having a right relationship with the self and with others. Now, there's a word called fruit. Jesus used it, and Paul used it, young Galatians, but Jesus talked about, again, you know them by the fruit. Jesus, Paul talked about in Galatians, the fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. What's this word fruit mean? Well, it means behavior. That's what we use nowadays. We use the word behavior. Behavior that reflects a person's spiritual state, i.e. the relationship or their lack of relationship with God. Fruit. Okay. And that's what ethics and morality is. Again, there's an element of it that's a behavior. How I, you know, act. How I respond to certain situations. How I treat other people. Um, You know, things that I do that I think are important. That I feel are something that's right. And that, you know, and I don't want to compromise doing right. Again, as little do, has something to do with relationship with God. Again, because relationship with God, I think, informs you know, because if you have a right relationship with God, you're going to want to do what's right. But if you don't give a crap about God, then you may not give a crap about doing right. Because why? Just do what the world does and seek pleasure and avoid pain. Because that's, that's, that's the ethos of the world today. Of seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's it. But for a person who has a relationship with God, they, they want to please God. So you have active and you have passive moral mindedness. Unfortunately, in our world we live in today, most people and most Christians live a passive or an idle kind of moral life, i.e. they don't think about it. They just kind of get on with it. But an active moral mind has two options, that of wanting to seek good and that of 
wanting to not see good. One's called being good. One's called being bad. An act of moral mind says, I want to be good. I will to be and to do good. It's a person because I want to have a good life. I want to live right. I want to experience good things in life. I want to be a good person. You know, it's great to have a good relationship with God, but I also want to have a right, good relationship with other people. But then there's also being bad, which says I do not will to be and do good. And this might be equivalent to like someone, and this might seem odd to you, who might come and look at what we're talking about, look at these commandments in the, the Bible. The Bible's filled with moral tidbits, if you will. But the Bible's filled with morality and filled with ethics, what we ought or not to do. But a person who looks at it, who wants to do good, well, first of all, you have to agree with the theory. You have to agree, yeah, this is right, this, mean, this is good. But they look at it and they change their lives accordingly. I want to do good, this is what I do. But a person who looks at it and will disagree with it, you know, that's the other person, the, the bad person, if you will. They'll look at it and they'll say, you know what? I disagree with everything the Bible says. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, I want to do. Now, there's two reasons for that. First of all, they disagree with the theory. Okay, fair enough. Or number two, they think, yeah, this is fine, but I don't like it. I just, I just want to reject it. When it talks about sexual morality, I, I just don't want to do it. I, just, I choose to be bad. It sounds a bit odd, but that's kind of what happens. Yeah, I, I see it. I see what it says, but I'm going to reject it. Oh, okay. I mean, how else would you explain that? That's an active decision to do or not to do what the Bible says we ought or ought not to do. But there's also the third category, which I think is the majority of us. And I think this is a problem. It's a problem when salvation theology is believed to have replaced ethical and moral life. In other words, it's like saying, I'm saved by grace or faith. So it really doesn't matter what I do. I'll just float about the world. But I'm, all, I'm cool because I'm covered by God's grace and love. So I can just mess up every relationship. I can cheat. I can lie. I can be just whatever I want to be. It doesn't matter. The problem with that is you're replacing the role of salvation theology, in t- which is our relationship with God, with ethics and morality, which is our relationship with other people. And again, like we talk about with fruit, if you have that kind of behavior and you tend to be uh, the person who's a bad person, if you will, you know, then you, th- you get asked the question, is, do you really have the right relationship with God? So when you're passively idle, what usually results is this, what I call moral mediocrity. I don't want to pursue being good. I don't want to pursue being bad. I just won't pursue nothing. I'll just exist. But it's cool because Jesus loves me, this I know. And that's all that matters. And here, what we're seeing, what these guys are saying is like, yeah, we understand you're safe by grace or faith, but please do these things. And they even call them requirements. Please do these things. Because it's the right thing to do. Again, it has nothing to do with being saved. It has to do with doing the right thing. Ethics and morality. And there's a word, I love this word. I use it a lot, and it can be used in a bad way, and it can be used in a good way. I like to use it in a good way. Scruples in a bad way could be like saying, you know, oh, that person's a goody tissue, whatever. But scruples can also be very helpful. It could be something that helps you to like, you, you know, it's like having like principle. I just won't do these things. Or I will do these things because it's important to me that I don't or do or do, do these things. That's what a scruple is. It's moral convictions born from an active 
moral mind. Again, an active moral mind. A mind that's purpose is, I want to do good. I, I think it's all right to be a good person. Yeah, I understand I'm saved by grace and faith. And I understand I have a great relationship with God. But you know what? I don't want to hurt people. And I want to live a really good life that is fulfilling and rich. I want to pursue good. I want to live right. I want to have a good life. I want to be a good person. And so therefore, they're going to look at the scriptures. They're going to learn wisdom, the scriptures, on how to live right with yourself and with other people. That's, and so you, you tend to sit, sit, like have these scruples. One of the scruples would be, like say, teetotalism. I will decide that I will not touch drink because it's something that I think is important for me. Now, it's not a law. You're not going to go to hell if you drink. I, I like to drink. I have wine and I have beer. You guys know that. Why? Because it's not my scruple. <laughs> it's another person's scruple, right? Some people smoking. Oh, you smoke. You, you know, you're going to go to hell. No, you smell like you've been to hell, but you don't going to go to hell if you smoke. Scruples. You guys get it? Scruples. The problem is when you turn these scruples into something more than what they ought to be. You, you, remember what I talked earlier? You place old laws and new laws. It's a vicious cycle. When you turn these scruples into a new righteousness, a new sense of righteousness. This is how you, you live a right relationship with God, by not drinking, not smoking. That's legalism. And that's what happened with the circumcision. Oh, you're not in a right relationship with God unless you're circumcised. That's legalism. And the problem, again, is where scruples become the standard of having a right relationship with God, replacing the biblical model. You guys understand there's a difference now between having a right relationship with God and having a right relationship with yourself and with other people? And the difference between salvation theology and ethics and morality. The problem is, is when we try to group it all together and say, I'm all right with God, so I'm all right with everyone. Well, you might be right with God, but you might not be all right with other people. In fact, it could be the opposite. You might be really good with other people, but not be right with God. But God must love me because everyone loves me. But does God know you? Do you know God? You see how, the, how there are two different things that need to be considered individually. Next slide, please. So like I said in that other slide, Paul's going to deal with scruples a little bit. He's going to deal with scruples a little bit. And I'm just going to deal with this next slide probably. And then maybe um, pick it up from next week, the rest of it. Because I have more in here, but I don't have time. Because I don't know what I did. I must have waffled. So we'll look at what Paul says about scruples. And maybe this might help. I hope hopefully some of these concepts might help through discussions tomorrow night as well, guys. But this is cool, because you're not even gone to Corinthians 10 yet, so I'm going to fast forward. But it's okay, though, because it's called context, and it's helpful. Paul and scruples. And I like this portion of Scripture. It's so good. I mean, if you believe the Scripture is right and authoritative, then it absorbs some of these awesome principles. Because you can deal with themes like freedom, consciousness, and, and really treating people right. Okay, here is what he says. I have the right to do anything, you say. Again, because you're theology, you can do anything you want, because you're saved through faith, not by works. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. Beneficial. Now he's starting to use a term, beneficial, what's right, what's helpful, what utilizes, what's helpful, what's good. It's an ethical term. It's a moral term. Yeah, you have the right, spiritually, to do whatever you want, because you're, you're saved by Grace of faith. You can't, you know, but not everything is good. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. 
No one should seek their own goods, but the goods of others. That's an ethical statement. This is not a salvation statement. He's not saying if you want to be right with God, you have to seek the good of others. He's saying if you want to be a good person, no one should seek their own good. The word should, it's an ethical statement. Sometimes should and ought. You know, they're, they're brothers. They're interchangeable for the most part. So no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the market, meat market without raising questions of consciousness. Where the earth is the Lord's and everything. Funny thing is, because in this list of things that the, these requirements, as they called it, one of the things is, is eating meat sacrificed to idols. And one, don't do that. And also eating black pudding. Don't do that. <laughs> right? That's what he basically said. But now Paul seems to be going the opposite direction. Why? Because it's not a hard, fast rule. It's a principle. You have to understand culture. Why? And we're going to deal with this next week. Why is it a food sacrifice idol is a problem? Because culturally it'll offend your brothers and sisters. Why is it that eating meat strangled from animals and the drippings of the blood? Well, because it's offensive. That's why. But here he says, the bottom line is this. But you still are free to eat whatever meat you want in the market. Don't raise, without, without raising your consciousness. For the earth is a large thing. So I have the freedom to eat anything that's halal or anything that's kosher. And the funny thing is, it, a lot of religions have very particular foods that they can and cannot eat. But why don't Christians? Why? Because we have freedom. We have freedom. I, I, I might be offended Personally, I can't get my mind around eating black pudding, but I don't care if you do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think it's me culturally more than anything else. I don't get it. And it kind of turns my tummy. But then again, we have a thing called Teresa, which is probably just as bad. <sighs> but the thing is, a lot of religions would say, I have to eat these things, these certain things and nothing else. But what about Christians? The cool thing about Christians is some, people, some Christians say, well, I can't eat halal because halal is, is, is offered to a false god because they say a prayer and they kill the animal, and so that's given to Allah. The thing is, according to him, if it doesn't bother your conscience, I don't ask, I don't think about it, I just eat my curry and enjoy it. I've got that freedom. But if I'm eating with someone who's tripped up by it, then we have a problem. So like I'm eating a curry, and someone's watching me, and he's like, oh, you know that's hello meat, and that offends me. <sighs> Same thing goes with drink. I drink wine and beer, as you guys know. Well, I like a nice little drink. However, if I'm sitting with someone who's like, Oh, and they're sweating and they're freaking out. And they're like, I don't know if you should do that. I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I have the freedom to do it, but I have the freedom not to do it as well. And this is what he's talking about. Look at this, guys, as he unpacks it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal, okay, so a mate invites you over to come and eat and maybe have a pint. Eat whatever is put before you without raising a question of consciousness. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it for both the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of the conscience. So others around, oh, I don't know if we should do that. Okay. See what I'm saying? So don't really, it's kind of don't ask, biblical don't ask, don't tell kind of principle. For the matter of consciousness, what trips you up? What trips another person up? I'm referring to the other person's consciousness, not yours. So again, if you're going to like a buffet, and I think in Scotland, I think drink's more of a problem than, than eat, to be honest with you guys. You say you go into a big Christian buffet, and you know that there's some people there who don't, who look, who, the teetotal type, and they're like, oh, you can't drink as Christians. Well, you know what? For their own consciousness, for their sake, we can be cool and just have a drink-free night. Big deal. You have the freedom to, and you have the freedom not to. 
So I am referring to the other person's consciousness, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's consciousness? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denouncing because of something that I thank God for? So whether you eat, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line, guys. Here's what I really want to get at. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. So again, as far as your relationship with God's concerned, yeah, no effect. But we're not dealing with just a relationship with God. We're also dealing with a relationship with other people. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Whether Jew, so this is where the culture comes in. Whether Jews or Greeks or or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. So again, Paul's ethics, his morality, isn't just seeking his own pleasure and avoiding his own pain, but he's looking at other, other people as well. So it's not just my own good I'm interested in, but I'm also interested in the good of other people around me. Why? Because he wants the ultimate good for people, that they might be saved. Yeah.